Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Wonderful. <laughs> Am I on, Doug? Good? Okay. Oh, there we go. Now I can hear myself. I just turned 40 uh, this last week, so things are starting to scare me. If I can't hear myself, I'm worried I'm aging too loud. But. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Graydon. I'm a member here at Stonebridge Church and uh, elder, and it is a joy to be here this morning studying God's Word and uh, it's, it's certainly a privilege to, to be up here and leading that. Um, this morning I want to begin uh, actually by reading a story to you. All right? I hope you guys all like stories. And this story is found in a book called Jesus Freaks. I don't know if, it, if you guys have ever read this. This book came out in about 1999 and it's composed of a series of stories over the last couple thousand years of martyrs or people who have died for the name of Jesus. Uh, and maybe not even died, but suffered, okay? And, and if you've read this book, or if you haven't read this book, I would encourage you to do so because it is a really encouraging book to your faith. Um, in fact, m- my family, I have four daughters, and, and uh, years back we actually went through this book and just read one story at a time um, just to change up kind of our family Bible study. And, and it really was something to see um, how, how my daughters especially grew in their faith because they saw people who were bold in their faith. And so if you haven't read this book, um, you'll probably find it on Amazon. It's a really easy read. The stories are very interesting, uh, but they're all true. And this morning I want to read to you a story out of this, but before we get to it, uh, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you guys to think about an equation, and we're going to put it up on the screen hopefully. Um, but this equation came from a commentary that I read um, in preparation for this morning's sermon. And the equation is very simple, but it has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today in the book of Philippians. But this equation simply is circumstances to whatever you're engaged in or whatever you are, uh, whatever is in your surroundings. Circumstances plus a godly perspective equals rejoicing. Say that again. Circumstances. Kind of think about this. Circumstances. Plus, a godly perspective can equal rejoicing. Now, the story I'm going to read to you this morning is a story titled, If You Love Jesus, Don't Sing. And it's about a man named Tom White, about 1979-1980. It goes like this. Well, this isn't bad, Tom White mumbled to himself. He stood in a pitch black cold room. He could feel the wind pouring into the room from the vent above the door. And exploring the cell, he found a bed with broken springs, a stinking mattress, and an old wooden chair nailed to the floor. He lay down, but sleep was impossible. It was just too cold. His sleeveless coveralls were made of thin cotton, so they weren't much help. He wondered how long he could stay alive in this room. Tom White, an American Christian had made many successful drops of gospel literature over Cuba, distributing more than 400,000 pieces. But on May 27, 1979, his small plane crash-landed on a Cuban highway just as he had finished a night drop. He was immediately arrested by the communists who questioned him and put him in solitary confinement. Finally, the guards put a hood over his head and took him to a little room for more questioning. It sure is warm today, isn't it? The captain taunted. 
taking off his military jacket as he began the interrogation. Who do you work for? I work for Jesus. Oh, is that right? How much money did this Jesus pay you for making these trips? I took these trips for no pay. My pay is the love and blessing that God gives for me for obeying him. Most of the captain's questions centered around money, the CIA, the revolution. These were the only concepts of power that he seemed to understand. After three or four days of cold and little sleep, White was too tired to even follow his train of thought. He sat in front of his interrogator, his head dropping, his thoughts wandering. How can I fight this? This could go on forever, White asked himself. Suddenly, he had the answer. He explains, the Holy Spirit gave me a measure of pity and compassion for this man who was more in prison than I. I stopped responding to his questions and stared directly into his eyes. Oh God, help Captain Santos, I prayed. Break through, Jesus. He is the one in the cold, for he has never felt warmth of your love. I continued to pray in front of him like this for hours. His questions came less frequently until he finally stopped. What are you doing, he demanded. I'm praying for you. The captain's mouth dropped open. He, he ran one hand back through his hair and then rummaged for a cigarette. This was the first time White had seen him smoke. The, prison, the prisoner continued to sit rigidly as he was required, looking at Santos and praying. The captain looked nervously around the room, then started drumming his fingers on the desk in the next session. White was surprised to see him wearing sunglasses. Evidently, he didn't want White to see his eyes. That's all right. God doesn't need eye contact. He deals with the heart, White thought, and continued to pray. Santos sent for Major Alvarez. The Major was always his last resort. Alvarez stormed into the room, red-faced and angry as usual. So you think this is a game, he screamed, pounding on the desk for emphasis. Now we are going to send you to the third foot of the cat. White remembers, I was thrown into another room. Following the walls in the darkness, I discovered there was no bed or chair. The blower vent over the door was fully open. The cold air was pouring in at such a terrific rate that my hair was blown straight out from my head. I tried to walk in the pitch darkness to keep warm, holding my hands out to keep, uh, keep from bumping into the wall, but the wall was too cold to touch. Besides, rather than warming me, walking only brought me closer to the event, and I huddled in a corner finally. Oh, God, help me, I cried out in despair. He would, only not in the way I wanted. I stuffed my coverall legs into my socks to keep the air from coming up my pants, and then I pulled my arms inside my sleeveless top, and I stretched the top over my nose so, that my, so I could heat my body with the warmth of my breath. This gave me times of relief, but the fatigue and slow but steady loss of body heat would cause me to start shaking. And I couldn't bear to sit on the floor nor lean on the wall. The only position that worked was standing with just my forehead touching the wall. I don't know why I remembered to sing, but God's hand was guiding and teaching me. As the levels of punishment grew more and more severe, so did the intensity of spiritual warfare. 
Satan tried harder to drag me down, but God gently raised me up. Psalm 3.3 says, He is my glory and the lifter of mine head. God was gracious, merciful, and loving, asking only for a chance to prove himself to me. So I started singing a great hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. I sang, Jesus loves me. Bible choruses in every Christian song I could remember. I was no longer conscious of the cold, only of Jesus. With eyes closed, my head barely touching the wall, I whistled, sang, even imitated a trumpet blasting out the praises of the Lord. Although I didn't think through the many scriptures which support it, I had entered in the highest level of warfare against my enemy. Praise. Psalm 22.3 says, God inhabits our praises. I don't know how this is accomplished, but it's true. The mighty deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior was with me. He held my shaking body in his arms. I was with Jesus no matter what happened. A guard opened this little steel window flap in the door and peered inside curiously. What are you doing? He demanded. I'm singing about Jesus. Why? Because I love him, White replied. He slammed the flap and left. White continued singing. He returned a few minutes later and opened the window again. If you love Jesus, don't sing, he ordered. But White loved Jesus too much to stop singing. Over the next two days, the guards came back to check on him. Every three or four hours, a flap would open and a flashlight would beam. And it would snake across the floor looking for him. Still, White continued to sing. At the end of those two days, he was returned to his former cell, which... Through still cold, though still cold, seemed warm in comparison. Now convinced that he was not a super spy trying to overthrow the government, they had started White back up the treatment ladder. After three months, Tom White was moved from solitary confinement to the main prison, where 7,000 prisoners were kept. There he met and worshipped with the members of the Cuban church who were in prison for their faith. He served 15 years and was released on October 27th. He now serves as a U.S. Direct, director for the Voice of Martyrs. I wondered pretty quick what the impact of a man like that would do in a prison. And today we're going to we're going to get into a very similar situation in the book of Philippians. But my question is this. Could you bear a situation like that? Could you keep turning your eyes toward Jesus? Could you recognize your circumstances and see what God might be doing through those? If you're looking back through your life, would you see a pattern of seeking Jesus through trials and rejoicing in him? Or would you be maybe calling out because you think you finally need him in your moment of desperation? Or maybe if you look back in your life, would you see a pattern of turning your back on Jesus every time something tough happens? Asking, why is this happening to you? You see, Mr. White is one of many men and women who, since the time of Jesus, have truly understood the value of the gospel and were willing to live out the scriptures of Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, today we will see the stories like these have been happening for generations. It is the true result of the impact of the gospel that allows us to live the spiritual equation that we're called to follow. If you would, let's read out of Philippians together. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 is where we're at today. And it says this, and this is Paul writing. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, let's stop right there. Paul's not in a good situation right here. Paul's in prison, and I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit. But, but Paul should have every reason, as a normal man, to be angry, upset, depressed, whatever it might be of his situation. And yet, right here in verse 12, he says, it served to advance the gospel. Going on. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's having an effect on people. And people know that Paul wasn't in prison for crimes. People truly understand that he was in prison because of his faith. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are, more, are, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in imprisonment. You see, Paul is saying there's two groups out there now. There's, there's brothers and sisters in Christ who truly understand the gospel and they're preaching it out of their love for the gospel and their love for me because they want the message of Christ to go on. He said, but there's another group that's preaching the gospel because they want the fame and recognition that they think I have. And so now that I'm in prison, they're taking over. They want people to see how great they are in front of the crowd. And he said, but regardless, read this in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul's an incredible man. He was chosen by Jesus to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And if you look back at Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts, especially 9, 15, and 16, you will see that God proclaimed what Paul's life would look like. You see, God told Ananias during Paul's conversion that, that Paul was God's chosen instrument to spread the name of Jesus through the good times and the suffering from the, to the Jews and the Gentiles. And in fact, in this passage, God promises in verse 16 that Paul will suffer for the sake of the gospel. He took a man that, that was a horrible being and made him an instrument 
but he knew Paul would suffer. So imprisonment for Paul at this point probably isn't a total surprise to him. He knew that God was going to do this to him if he shared the gospel message. But Paul was faithful and understood the God that he served. Now, scholars are are a bit divided on this, but many say that Paul's imprisonment in this passage is probably not as dark as we believe. He's probably not stuck in some nasty dark cave devoid of sunlight, fresh air, or decent living conditions. Rather, it's thought that he's in some sort of house arrest at the point of the scripture. It is also believed that uh, by a good number of biblical historians that Paul's imprisonment was was forcing him to live in a rented living quarters, but he had to be totally dependent on others to provide for all of his needs. In other words, people had to actually bring him food, water, and any living supplies that he needed. And, And in this imprisonment, he would have been chained to a guard for 24 hours a day. He never had any privacy. He could not go freely anywhere he wanted to. And if you look in the book of Acts chapter 28, um, you'll find out more about this. But we gather that although Paul may have been able to go um, anywhere, people may not have been able to go anywhere. People were freely available to visit him. During which you can imagine there was many Christ-centered conversations happening. Certainly Paul's circumstances were less than desirable. And yet that we see his attitude is not what most would expect from him in this situation. You see, if you or I were in this situation, I'm sure we'd be pretty bitter. Depression, anger, embarrassment would begin to consume us and get the better of our mind and character. Situations like this tend to make you and I turn to God out of anger and ask Him, why is this happening to me? However, what Paul does next in this passage allows him to endure the oppression he's in. We see Paul live out the command that is given to us at the beginning of the book of James. That's in chapter 1, verses 2 for Two through four, it says this Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, Paul takes his circumstances and adds something to it a godly perspective. A a godly filter, so to say. He begins to see things in a different way. Right away in verse 12, we see Paul and uh, tell the readers that the bad that has happened to him has served to advance the gospel. What could be better than that? Who could argue that his imprisonment has had a positive effect on those around him? He realizes that he has been put in a place of of probably sin and corruption and is slowly seeing why God has allowed that. 
And then rather than being disappointed in his situation or circumstances, we see Paul choose to overwhelm the circumstance with the goodness that could come of it. Paul chooses to see the situation that God has allowed as a new version of ministry. And he begins to tell us all that God is doing through him in that. Remember that I told you Paul's imprisonment was more like a house arrest situation. However, even during his sentence, it is believed, like, like I said, he was chained directly to a guard for 24 hours a day. But let me tell you this, it wasn't just any guard. The men that were, were chained to Paul were imperial guards. They were known as the Praetorian Guard. And these, these men were a group of 10,000 elite, hand-picked men from the Roman army. Their main job was to protect the emperor, the emperor's household, and his family. And these men lived together in special camps. They, they served together. They, they practiced together. They took care of each other. And their time in this army was no less than 12 years. They had to commit 12 years of service. You can imagine the brotherhood of these guards. And we see Paul again look at this through a godly perspective as he realizes the opportunity for the gospel. Paul mentions that it has become well known through the imperial, imperial guard that his imprisonment is for Christ. It says that right here. Verse 13. And I'm sure that it's true. I mean, think of it. These men were chained to Paul 24 hours a day. And I'm sure many did this so much that they began to know Paul very well. And you and I both can guess that Paul would not let an opportunity like that to go. And I'm sure that they listened to Paul and the conversations that he had with people about the gospel that came to visit. And there was no doubt that the Holy Spirit changed the lives of some of these men because Paul impacted them. As he was imprisoned, chained to them. And begin to think about the ripple effect that this could have. These soldiers returned to their camp and sharing with their closest and trusted friends the message of the gospel. And if they were guards in the palace for the emperor, there's no doubt that the servants and maybe even members of the royal family heard the gospel message too. There's no telling how much Paul's imprisonment impacted people with the advance of the gospel and their hearts. Scripture doesn't tell us directly, but we have that glimpse that the whole empirical guard knows my, my, my imprisonment for Christ. Paul also sees the benefit of his incarceration in the lives of those who knew Christ, but lacked the bravery to share the message of the gospel. Because of boldness through his trials, Paul shares that it's inspired his fellow believers, and they're not afraid to proclaim the name of Jesus 
anymore. We see another ripple, so to say, because of his imprisonment. Now, granted, some of them are doing it for the wrong reasons. And Paul notes that some who are sharing the gospel are doing this out of spite for him and his notoriety. They're looking for a little bit of fame. Jealous that Paul had the eyes and the attention of many. But even though their reasons for doing so are selfish at the core, they are still sharing the truth that Jesus died for the sins of all. And Paul recognizes that even through the failures of men, God can still make his name great, and that is something to rejoice in. Circumstances. Plus a godly perspective can equal rejoicing. Paul's circumstances are surely not what anybody, what you and I would desire at all. We also see that his godly perspective seems to to trump all the things that he could be complaining about. And the result of that is to rejoice. Through all of this, Paul has the attitude that we should strive to have in our lives. He sees what God is doing and could be doing. He sees the power of the gospel. That it is stronger than any circumstance. He sees that enemies need the message of salvation. He sees that he has a new opportunity in this situation. And he chooses to be glad in it. So where does that leave you and I? How are we to practically live a life of joy in all circumstances? We know that this message is shared and and even commanded to us in more than one place in Scripture. So why do you and I treat that as a choice? That's something that has stirred my heart. When I'm called by Scripture... To rejoice in all circumstances. Why do I treat that as a choice? Aren't I called to obey scripture? Honestly, when, when we find ourselves in moments of trial, is our first reaction to really rejoice? To give praise? Thank God for the situation that he has allowed you to be in. In my experience as a human man, I can tell you that is not where my thoughts and feelings go in a moment of trial. However, I can honestly tell you that in my moments of trial, although my first reaction is not joy, one of my very first thoughts is, God, you must have a reason. And I cannot, no matter how hard I try, defer that thought. I know that because of my relationship with Christ, that's the Holy Spirit constantly speaking to my heart and mind. And even though my sin nature wants to do the opposite, the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, hey, remember what you know. 
The thought to turn to God is purely a thought that is given by Him. And that's how it begins to work. However, at the point in my trial, I do have a choice to make. God will not force me to do what's right. I have to choose it. For me, at that point, Scripture begins to flood my memory. And James 1 is one of those passages that that comes to mind very quickly. Choose joy, it says. It doesn't say consider or think about. It says choose it. And at that point, you and I have a choice to make. Do I obey God? Or do I follow my sinful self? Is choosing joy easy? Absolutely not. So how do, how do we just flip a switch and do it? Well, you don't. The only way to overcome a horrible, undesired circumstance is to choose, day by day, a godly perspective. I have to remind myself of who God is. All that He has promised me, all that He has done for me and promises to do. I have to play out what's in front of me and see the possible God stories that could come of this situation. It might play out quickly and I'll see what God is going to do. It might take a lot of time. I never know. But regardless of what I do, I know I have to overwhelm myself with a godly perspective or a godly filter and know that he will do do something great to make his name great. And in that I can find joy. You can imagine that Paul is not enjoying his time in house arrest. Who would? Being confined to a space, chained to a guard, And depending on others to bring you what you need, who would like a situation like that? But Paul chooses to see things through the power of what God is doing in his circumstance. He sees other believers gaining courage and speaking out about their faith. He sees the opportunities to share the the gospel with the royal guards and possibly the gospel message being shared throughout the emperor's house. He sees that even though those who are taking the opportunity to gain fame in his absence by sharing the gospel, they're still sharing the gospel. Paul is able to see what God is doing despite the circumstances that he is in. And this allows him to rejoice. Will you and I choose to do the same? Will you pray for God's goodness in trials? Will you choose to find joy or just do what most of the people around you would normally do in a situation like that? Thursday afternoon, I received a text from my sister. She lives in Texas. 
And she told me that her father-in-law had suddenly passed away that day. My brother-in-law's dad. My heart just sank. Mark was his name, and Mark was a godly man. He was such a joy to know. I had known him for 20 years. He was a pastor, an amazing husband, a great father, a great grandfather, and my friend. And he was gone just like that. My sister and and brother-in-law have four children, two boys, two girls. And my sister shared the news with my my nephews later that day. And and as you can guess, they were heartbroken. Grandpa's gone. She said there were tears, but, but they were doing okay. Yesterday, I received a text from my sister, again, telling me that she shared the news with her oldest of two daughters, Piper, who's five. And expecting more tears and heartache, my niece responded with something that I think we can all learn from. My sister's text said this, and I'm sorry. I just talked to Piper and told her that Papa Mark had passed and went to live with God. My sister says, I did not expect her reaction, but it was precious. She was quiet while I talked. And when I asked her how she was, she smiled so big. Mommy, my eyes are a little bit watery because I miss Papa. But Mom, he is living with God. And he is so happy right now. My sister said she got more and more excited the more she talked about it. And my sister said, I was, I was wondering if she really understood. And so I talked to her a little more and she said, it was evident she understood. Papa was gone. But she is so full of joy for him. She wanted to send hugs to grandma and daddy who were helping with the funeral and far away. And she said, it's okay to cry because you miss him. But not because anything is bad. Heaven is all good things. So I am happy for Papa. And we should be happy. My sister said she is all smiles at this moment. My dad responded to that text and he said we should all feel that way. If we could only have a child's insight. Have we forgotten who God is? Have we forgotten what he can do? Have we forgotten that God is alive and active in our lives and that he always wants what is good? Have we forgotten that God can do amazing things? Have we forgotten to see the simple truths of God in horrible horrible circumstances that any five-year-old can see and understand? Circumstances plus godly perspective equals rejoicing. Although it's not easy, I am called by Scripture to find joy. 
And I hope we all choose to do the same. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. And I'm thankful that your word is true. God, we, we screw up. And, and on our own human abilities, we can't do it. God, may we find joy in horrible circumstances. May we see a bigger picture of what you might be doing. And may we rejoice that you are choosing to use us in all that. God, you are bigger than things. And that gives me peace. Remind us of that the next time you lead us through something like this. In Jesus' name, amen.